Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of Eco Business. Today we're going to talk about an environmental issue that has only just started to get traction in the media over the last year deep sea mining. The ocean floor is scattered with vast beds of minerals that could be used to make modern gadgets, from smartphones to solar panels and batteries. But environmentalists warn that mining it could remove entire habitats and threaten as yet undiscovered species, and release toxins and create pollution in areas that have been undisturbed for millennia. Though there is a rising demand for the materials we need to transition to clean energy and combat climate change, do we need to plunder nature's last frontier to find them? On today's podcast, Sean Owen from conservation group the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition argues that mining the deep seas shouldn't happen, no matter what treasures are buried in an environment scientists know less about than the surface of the moon. For Owen and her colleagues, it's an exciting challenge because it's the first time that conservationists have had the chance to address an environmental threat before it has done much damage but they're up against powerful corporations and uncertain protections for an environment that the pro-mining camp says must be exploited if we are to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you, Robin. So this is a topic, as I mentioned in in the intro, that's new to many of us. And I wanted to ask you first question, why the recent concern about deep seabed mining? What is down there that is worth protecting and, and why should we be worried? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we've known that the deep sea, and when I say the deep sea, the water column really below 200 meters and the international seabed, we've known for over 50 years that there were vast quantities of of mineral deposits in the areas of the deep sea. So these include iron, manganese, copper, zinc, nickel, rare earths, and and a number of, of these metals, of course, are becoming increasingly in demand uh, for our for our economy these days. So really, this is not new discoveries, but we are now able technologically to start thinking about exploiting them. And, and these metals are not being mined yet. So this is all in a very speculative stage, but it's moving very quickly. So what is down there? Why should we be worried? Um, Every expedition that goes down, every scientific expedition, discovers ever more about the deep sea. So what we already know is that the deep sea makes our planet habitable. One out of every two breaths that we take, the ocean makes possible that a healthy ocean gives us oxygen. There is an extraordinary wealth of biodiversity down there. And and this is the deep sea is 95% of our planet that is habitable for any form of life. So it's really a critically important life support system for our planet, the ocean. And we know less about it than we do about the surface of the moon. Yeah. And I was reading an article in The Atlantic, actually, which described it quite nicely. I'm sure you've seen this, but um, the actual underwater topography sounds incredible. You know, we often think of the deep sea, we think of an endless uh, seabed of sand, right? But actually, there's, uh, to quote The Atlantic, mountains surge from underwater plains, canyons slice miles deep, hot springs below through fissures in rock, and streams of heavy brine ooze down hillsides, pooling into 
undersea lakes. So it sounds sounds amazing down there. Um, so um, what in particular? Um, you mentioned the biodiversity. What actually is down there? You know, when people talk about conserving, say, tropical rainforests, they talk about iconic species like the orangutan. But what's down there in the deep sea that's really worth us protecting? So I love the poetry of what you've just read. That is that is so such a beautiful description. We've got, I mean, the seamounts are a good place to start. Those are they're covered with cold water corals, with fields of sponges, hydrothermal vents that have life growing in, in, in chemical solutions and at temperatures that, that we didn't until recently even believe that life could on Earth could exist at. Um, there are, the deeper that you get, and there are some fantastic animations of this out there, the deeper that you get, the stranger and crazier the critters become. Um, so there's some fantastic, fantastic critters like the anglerfish, and and there are there are whales that that dive down kilometers down into the deep. One of the things that we're becoming increasingly, um, that we're understanding increasingly, is the migration patterns of uh, creatures and and life forms that move from the deep up to the mesopelagic areas and back down again on a daily basis. So there's this whole life cycle as well that, that moves between these different realms. One of my favorite animals down in the deep is a deep sea octopus called Casper because it looks like a little ghost. And one of the things that we've just found out in, in recent years uh, is that these octopuses, the female octopus actually lays their eggs on the manganese nodules. And the nodules are are some of the some of the ecosystems that the miners are looking to mine first if they ever get to get to go down there. These Casper octopuses lay their eggs on uh, on the, the the dead stalks of sponges that are attached to the nodules, and then they sit there for fifty three months and brood their eggs. And at the end of that fifty three months, the baby octopuses hatch and move out into the ocean. And the mother has just faded away. Um, and this is the longest gestation period on the planet. The previous record was held by the emperor penguin of two months. So there's some, and every time we go down, we discover more, more of these crazy, interesting facts about the ocean. Indeed. Yeah, I was reading about snails that make their shells out of iron, which sounds particularly impressive that, that sit on the side of... Um, Hot, underwater hot springs. So as you mentioned earlier on, Sean, commercial mining hasn't happened yet. So what about the argument, Sean, that we need the metals on the seafloor to enable the energy transition, which is a pretty strong one? There's been a number of studies done uh, to answer the question as to do we really need the metals from the seafloor? And the answer to that depends heavily on the assumptions that you're making about A, what future demand for metals is going to look like, and B, what sort of innovation is going to be happening in the, in, in the development of technology over the coming period. So the University of Technology in Sydney, the, their international sustainability team, can, has, has put together a couple of research reports over the last few years that have drawn the conclusion that 100% renewable energy economy globally is possible without going into the deep seabed for the metals needed. 
So you find that companies such as Tesla are already producing cobalt-free batteries for its electric vehicles. Just this week, a company in California has come out with some news about nano-diamond batteries, but the heart of which is a small piece of recycled nuclear waste. So those won't even need the metals that are found in the deep seabed at all. So some of the assumptions that the pro-miners are making are, are based on a 20th century or 19th century view of the world. Let's go out and extract more. Rather than really looking at investing our innovation, investing our energy into reuse, redesign, recycling, and, and, and a true circular economy. Are we there yet, though? Um, I mean, we haven't even cracked recycling of solar panels, which is a, a big issue facing the circular economy. Um, what sort of confidence level are you at that we'll get the technology that we need to um, avoid um, having to go to the deep sea? So to some extent, that, that decision that lies in our hands, where are we going to invest our energy and our money to how are we going to shape both policy and, and that investment in a way that takes us to the future we want? So, you know, we've, scientists have told us that, that mining the deep sea holds vast potential environmental impacts and, and threats. There's degradation over vast spaces of ocean area. There's species extinctions. We're looking at reduced biodiversity and habitat complexity. But recovery is unlikely in any reasonable human time frame. There's sediment plumes and toxic plumes, noise pollution, light pollution. Are we, is that the, is that the preferable future for us to get a few of the extra minerals that we might need? Or do we, as, a, as, a, as humankind, want to challenge our, ourselves to invest and, and to support innovation that is sustainable. You as conservationists, right, you're up against some powerful forces um, from the commercial side, but also from the government side that want to press ahead with deep sea mining because of the, um, the vast riches that it promises, right? Um, is there any such thing in your view as sustainable deep sea mining? If you're looking at starting an industry that is going to destroy really the last untouched frontier on this planet and extract metals that, that will be used and then potentially, potentially wasted as once the end of their life has come because we haven't yet invested in that circular economy vision, is that sustainable? It, I, our perspective on this is very much not. When you're when you're looking at that, those levels of destruction and degradation of of habitats that are critical for life on Earth, no, we don't see that as a sustainable future. And if you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, which all countries, the, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which all countries have signed up to and, and committed to delivering. Both Sustainable Development Goal 12 is about responsible con consumption and production, and that very much guides the countries of this world and, and, and all of us toward an alternative future. Similarly, Sustainable Development Goal 14 is, is focused on not 
creating significant adverse impacts in the ocean, maintaining the resilience of our ocean, not causing damage to ecosystems that are impossible to restore for generations to come, thousands or perhaps millions of years. So no, it's hard to argue that mining the deep sea floor would be sustainable in any way. Okay, what about the perspective of creating jobs, though, Sean? Um, in mining uh, on the land, for example, people complain that, well, if we stop coal mining, what, what are all the miners going to do? Um, how do? And it's called that, you know, known as the just transition to renewable energy, right? That trying to move traditional miners into new sorts of mining or, or renewable jobs, right? What about deep sea mining and its potential as a job creator? So again, you've got you've got the assumptions that you're making about about the future economy. So one scenario is that deep sea mining begins and and starts to extract metals from the deep sea floor, and that is a pretty that's not a, a particularly labor intensive activity. There may be some extra jobs created for, on the ships, um, although there are huge human rights and labor rights issues associated with high seas fisheries that we would have to be you know, very conscious of, of not replicating in this sector. Similarly, there may be a few extra jobs created on land for, for processing the ores, et cetera. But if you put that against the alternative future scenario where there's a major investment in redesign, in reuse, in recycling, there's a, a an equal and perhaps much greater opportunity for job creation in that transition economy as we move from the extractive approach to the to the transition. So can you tell us a bit about the main sort of companies and countries that are at play here? One of the things that I haven't mentioned really in to any great extent is the is the UN body that is responsible for that has the mandate uh, for managing the deep seabed on on behalf of humankind and that's the International Seabed Authority. So there are 167 member countries of the International Seabed Authority which has its headquarters in in Kingston, Jamaica and they meet regularly to to discuss uh, the and, and, and are in the process of negotiating an international regulatory framework to potentially mine the deep seabed. So of these 167 member countries, anyone can become a sponsoring state um, for a license. And at the moment, the only licenses, 30 licenses have been uh, granted for exploration. So there is currently no license, no contract for exploitation of the deep seabed, but 30 licenses for exploration. Of these, seven countries hold the majority hold 18 of the 30. And those countries are China, Japan, Korea, India, as well as France, Germany, and Russia. And then in addition, there are three companies that hold effective control over seven of the remaining contracts. Uh, there's a, a Canadian company called Deep Green, uh, an American company called Lockheed Martin, and a Belgian company called GSR. So effectively, over 80% of the exploration licenses to date are in the hands of, of these 10 entities. Um, additionally, I should just say, you know, from Deep Green, the Canadian company, they, they are working with sponsoring states because no company can sponsor its own license. So all companies that are engaged in this need a sponsoring state. 
So the sponsoring states for the Canadian company Deep Green are Nauru, Kiribati, and Tonga, all Pacific Island states. And Cook Islands as well uh, is the sponsoring state for Belgian companies' uh, contract in the Cook Islands. All countries are entitled to, um, forgive the expression, a, a piece of the deep sea, right? Even landlocked countries. Um, can you tell us a bit about how that works? And also Jamaica, why the HQ in Jamaica for ISA? That's interesting. The ISA was set up in, in, uh, under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which was negotiated um, in the 70s, uh, right through to the early 90s. So I think the, the headquarters in Jamaica is, a, is a, an interesting historical fact, um, an interesting, this, probably the result of, of diplomatic negotiations at the time. In terms of who will benefit from the mining, so the Massachusetts Institute of Technology has been commissioned, has been working on a, a number of scenarios for, for royalties and, and, and benefits, financial benefits over the last couple of years. A couple of countries have also done their own analyses of these, so there are there are a few analyses out there. What we have found looking on the basis of all of these analyses, and, and this is supported by some of the work that has been done by other countries who participate in the ISA, is that the net present value terms of, of the total compensation that we be expected to humanity of extracting this resource that is the common heritage of humankind would be about 490 million US dollars. So this represents just under $3 million for each of the ISA's 167 members over the 30 year life of an exploitation contract, because that's how, how long the exploitation contracts would be. So in other words, in next present value terms, each of the ISA members would receive about $100,000 a year, slightly less. Um, and it has been noted in an ISA meeting by the African group of ISA member countries last year in February, that this doesn't sound like fair compensation to humankind. The expectation that is being built uh, by the pro miners is that there's a lot of money out there to be had. It's not clear uh, indeed whether what the true sums are, or indeed whether that's valued for the destruction that will be caused. What sort of laws are in place, Sean, to protect the, the deep sea? And how effective are they at the moment? So currently, there are no laws in place. Um, this is why the ISA, the member countries of the ISA, are, are negotiating a regulatory framework. Um, there is some some expectation that perhaps that will be the negotiations will be complete as early as next year, although there are many, many, uh, many, many disagreements that are still under negotiation um, and, and much has yet to be resolved, both in terms of the regulations themselves, as well as the standards and guidelines under which mining would occur. There are there are deep negotiations about the royalty payments, um, which until those are, are resolved, it's hard to imagine how, uh, how the regulatory framework could be adopted. In addition, there are, there are discussions and big questions around liability. What if something goes wrong? Who will be accountable and liable for that? Um, so at the moment, there is no regulatory framework at all. 
There's also seabed mining um, exploration happening within national waters. So Japan is a good example. There was just news out in the last week or two about Japan successfully uh, uh, extracting cobalt from, from one of its seamounts. Um, but typically, uh, for the most part, countries that have the potential to mine in their own national waters have been holding back, waiting for the regulatory framework at the international level to be uh, agreed and adopted so that they could go forward with their own national regulations, uh, which are required to be at least as strong as the international framework. Singapore is another that I gather has interests through various companies to mine the deep sea. Um, I want to ask you about your work, Sean, with Deep Sea Conservation Coalition. We were talking previously and you said that it's the first time that conservationists have had the opportunity to address an environmental threat before it's done much damage. So, which is exciting for you guys, right? But how are you working to protect the seafloor? So the Deep Sea Conservation Coalition is a, is a coalition of about 80 organizations, civil society groups, local groups, national groups, international groups. We've been working for over 15 years um, at, at all levels, really, looking to raise awareness, looking to, to give voice to the communities whose, whose lives are or will be affected by ocean health or the, or the de degradation of ocean health right up to the to the top halls of of international power at, at the un and what we've been doing is uh first and foremost trying to ensure that the international regulatory framework is is strong uh is is in favor of ocean protection and protection protecting effectively this natural capital that we are all dependent on um, and then ensuring that whatever rules and regulations laws are in place are actually respected and, and implemented. Fundamentally, today, we are calling for a moratorium on deep seabed mining. That means that a, a, a pause to the adoption of the regulatory framework and to any mining at all until the many questions around the, the topic are answered. So until there is much greater scientific certainty about what is down there, about what we stand to lose in terms of sustaining life on our planet, in terms of social license. Do, do, do people know, does the world know, do, do, does the public know what is about to happen? Uh, and, and what we are about to lose. Is, is there license for the destruction, the impact potentially on fisheries, uh, potentially on, on iconic marine species like whales and turtles? Is, is, do we have really the license to do this? And is there, have we adequately explored the alternatives? What do you see as the biggest challenge to stopping deep sea mining, Sean? Um, is to a certain extent it's inevitable? No, I would not say it's inevitable at all. Um, the, I, I think the greatest challenge is twofold. One is the status quo. So the momentum of the way that we have used our planet and the, the approach that we have taken to natural resources um, up until in, in the last sort of 150, 200 years has been really a take-make-waste approach. And, and we, the, our consumerism uh, 
our consumerist attitude has really driven and blinded us to this question of where does it all go? We don't, there's no such thing as throwing away something on a fi- in a finite planet. So that's one major barrier is the, is the status quo. Uh, the other is, is the, the, few, the special interests that are, that are really pushing the mining agenda forward. They're few, but they're powerful, um, both financially and politically. Uh, and and there, there's a certain agenda to really push this, to accelerate this before, before the rest of the world can even wake up to what is being threatened and what is potentially to be lost. So, Sean, you mentioned some of the impacts of deep seabed mining. What sort of other damage could the industry do? Well, we haven't talked about land-based mining at all, but that's clearly a competitive sector for the potential of, of deep seabed mining because, and, and, and that may have some real impacts on, on countries in Asia, for example, Papua New Guinea comes to mind, Indonesia, the Philippines. The, the ISA itself has commissioned a study on the impacts of, of deep seabed mining on land-based mining. And the study actually concluded that for, for certain metals, uh, there, the, the supply from land-based sources to the global industry is already high. So more than 100 years in the case of copper and cobalt. Uh, manganese, there's 200 years of supply available. Uh, in the case of nickel, 60 years. So this alone says that really questions whether there's a need to mine the ocean. And, it, and, and if minerals start to come up in the ocean, what impact will that have on prices? Uh, and, and on these sectors in the various countries that are the sources of these minerals presently. There's been a lot of attention drawn to the uh, social and environmental uh, impacts of land-based mining. But our response to that would be, let's fix those problems. Let's address those issues on land instead of opening a whole new frontier of issues. As you mentioned, we all, all of us have a stake in the future of the, the deep sea floor, right? Um, given what you mentioned about um, the oxygen giving properties of the ocean and, and to mine the deep sea would, could impact that, literally the air that we breathe. Um, so how can we as consumers, regular folk, um, what can we do to protect the deep sea floor? At an individual level, at a personal level, we can all look at ourselves and really recognize what it means to live on a finite planet. Um, At a political level, we are all citizens of of some country. Many of us are constituents of of governments that we can influence through our votes. We can write to our MPs. We can write to our our leaders. We can insist that our governments at all levels take take responsibility. and, and, And very specifically on this front, Many of our governments are are members of the International Seabed Authority. We should be asking our governments to go to the the next ISA meeting and call for a delay in the adoption of regulations until these many critical questions are answered. Because the metals haven't come out of the seabed yet. We've existed thus far without them. Let's see if we can continue to thrive and survive. Let's see if we can deliver our future connectivity needs, our mobility needs, our energy needs, without opening this new frontier to exploitation. 
so it's not too late to do something about protecting the deep sea floor. That's a great place to leave it. Um, Sean Owen, thanks so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, Robin. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.